Thank you so much. Uh, I'm honored, I'm, I'm blessed to, to be here today, and I really appreciate your sweet spirit that this congregation has, your very welcoming heart, uh, and then most of all, your, your devotion to the Lord. And uh, when I speak today, since I'm coming from a Messianic Jewish background and perspective, I'm going to use uh, Jesus' uh, original Hebrew name, uh, Yeshua. So don't be thrown. You hear Yeshua, it means Jesus. Uh, and I want to speak today on the theme of pride and arrogance uh, and a haughty spirit. So it's going to be this, the text is going to be from the book of Proverbs, as you see on the overhead, a variety of, of different Proverbs from different chapters. So we're going to, I'm just going to read through these and, and go from there. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Whoever derides his neighbor has no sense, but one who has understanding holds his tongue. Where there's strife, there's pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share in the plunder of, of the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the unplowed field of the wicked, produce sin. Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. So on the overhead, uh, these Proverbs can drive home the point that if you think you're wise, you're a fool. <laughs> but if you're aware of all your foolishness, then you're on your way to becoming wise. Uh, Proverbs 16, 19 Better to be lowly in spirit and among the poor than to share plunder with the proud. Do you know what that's saying? Humility is more valuable than all the gold on the earth. So these verses are all about pride and humility, and we're going to learn three things from these passages we'll put on the overhead. Number one, the diagnosis of pride, what it is. Number two, the destructiveness of pride, what it does. Three, the antidote to pride how to cure ourselves from pride. So first, the diagnosis of pride. What, what is it? The book of Proverbs on the overhead tells us three things about pride. Number one, pride is needing to feel better than other people in some way. So for example, Proverbs eleven twelve, a man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor. Pride makes us look down on other people, uh, disdain, uh, feel contempt, feel we're better than others. Uh, we deride our neighbor. We're always comparing ourselves to other people. And this understanding is key to diagnosing pride. In C.S. Lewis's famous uh, Mere Christianity, uh, he writes this uh, about pride on the overhead. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only takes pleasure in having more of it than the other person. Proud people aren't really proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking. Rather, they're proud of having more success, uh, more intelligence, better looks than the people around them. It's the comparison that makes us proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. Therefore, lust may drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman. Pride may drive a man to sleep with a beautiful woman as well, but just to prove he can do it and do it above the others. Here's another example. Uh, back in my day, uh, our high school guidance counselors were always pushing us to get involved in various after-school clubs and activities, as, as many as possible, 
chess club, photography club, debate club, Latin club, rugby club. And when you'd object, you'd say, I don't like these things. I have no interest in them. They would always say, but it will look good on your resume for college. <laughs> so lots of students spended up, ended up spending, spending lots of time doing things they really didn't like. This is a way of accruing a resume. Now maybe that's not so bad to get into college, but what if this is the master narrative of your entire life? What if everything you're doing, you're not doing because you like it, you're doing it in order to make a case, to amass a resume, to, to prove to yourself and to others that you count, that you are a person of consequence. Arthur Miller, his play, After the Fall, has a powerful passage where at one point, the main character says this, and it's on the overhead. He says, for years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of arguments. Well, when you're young, you prove how, how brave you are or how smart. Then what a good lover. Then later what a good husband or father you are. Finally, how, how wise or powerful you are. But underlying it all, I see now there was an assumption uh, that a person moves along a path towards, I don't know, uh, towards being justified or condemned, some type of verdict. My disaster happened when I looked up one day and discovered the bench was empty. No God, no judge in sight. All that remained was this endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying despair. Now what's so powerful about this is here you have a playwright, Arthur Miller, who doesn't believe in God anymore, uh, but it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter whether you use uh, that term. He's saying, what he's saying is that every human being inexorably, unavoidably is out there trying to earn his or her own salvation. We're all unsatisfied enough, uh, incomplete in various ways, that in response we're out there amassing a resume. We're in the courtroom. We're constantly arguing this endless litigation. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in salvation or not, you're out there trying to earn your salvation. There's this endless litigation, endless arguments, endless spinning, uh, endless accruing of evidence for or against, for what? Uh, a verdict. Uh, and what's the verdict that we want? That I'm a person who counts. I'm a person of consequence. I'm okay. I'm a person of worth. Every human being desperately needs to prove his, this to themselves and to others. And therefore, we're all in court. We're all arguing. Endless litigation, uh, whether we believe in God or not. If you're a religious person, then you're doing it before God. If you're not a religious person, you're still doing it. You have to do it. That's what Arthur Miller's saying. And the easiest way to do this is to find someone else that you're better than. Uh, and remind yourself and remind them of it. <laughs> That's the way to do it. And it's so easy because we're doing it to each other all the time anyways. So over here's a crowd of people, for example, and we tell ourselves, well, we're hipper and cooler and savvier and more sophisticated than, than this other group. And it's easy because this other group over here is saying the opposite. They're saying, I hate uh, uh, postured, stylized, ironic people. Uh, we're hardworking. Uh, we're sensible. We're down to earth. We're not cynical. We're moral and religious, much more than this group. And the other group boasts, 
We're more open-minded. We're more progressive. We're more modern and woke and sophisticated and politically correct. We're not religious, and we're proud of it. So no matter which side you're on, conservative, liberal, atheist, Jew, Christian, messianic, it doesn't matter because we all have this carnal, fleshly need to feel that we're better than others, other people. So we're all out there spinning. Uh, we're all out there arguing. Endless litigation, uh, endless trial. The endless accumulation of evidence that I count. Endlessly trying to prove ourselves. Now that's the first thing that pride is, needing to feel you're better than other people. Why do we do it? Why do we need to do it? That brings us to the second aspect of pride, uh, the overhead. So pride is number one, needing to feel you're better than others. Number two, the second thing the Bible says about pride is that pride needs to take God's place in your life. The proud heart wants to take God's place in his life, in, his own, in your own life. There are several Hebrew words used here in the Proverbs for, for pride. Uh, Proverbs in 15 and in 16, the word is ga'im. Okay. So uh, when applied to God, it means, this, this word means supreme majesty. But, uh, so to use it for human being uh, is ironic, uh, but very telling as well. The Bible says every single human heart wants to be its own supreme being. We all want to be our own gods. We all want to be our own saviors and lords. We want to call the shots. We want to run our own lives. We want, we want to decide what's right or wrong for us. We want to earn our own self-worth. We want to find meaning, meaning in life on our own. We don't want to center our lives on the Lord. And that is what creates this exhausting, endless litigation and scrambling for recognition and acclaim. On the overhead, Lewis Smeads, a theologian, writes this. Pride, in the spiritual sense, is refusing to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for your own self. It's turning, God, it's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead uh, to be the creator, independent, not reliant on others, but only your own resources. And that is the greatest delusion, this delusional fantasy of all fantasies, the cosmic put on. And again, that's what leads to the endless litigation, the sense of being in this eternal trial. Why? Um, he continues. He says this on the overhead. He said, the fantasy that we can make it, uh, make it as, as our own gods leaves us empty at the center. Therefore, we're attacked by demons of fear and anxiety all the time. We learn to swagger. We learn to bluff. Deep down inside, we're afraid. We can't make it on our own. And therefore, we look around for people to use as buttresses for the shaky ego that our pride has created. We look for these people, and every now and then, and, and, and uh, every new situation calls forth this question. What can I get out of this situation to support the need for my ego, for my power, and applause? And every new person elicits the question, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I'm better than others? Life becomes this constant battle to use people to bolster your own self and to avoid letting others use you in the same way that you're using them. All because we're empty at the center. So on the overhead, pride is number one, needing to feel you're better than others. Number two, needing to be your own supreme being. And now number three, the proud self is constantly aware of itself. It's preoccupied with self. 
That's the nature of pride. It's, it's desperately self-aware. We're always thinking about, how am I looking? How am I doing? How am I performing? How am I being treated? Look at Proverbs 13, verse 10. Wisdom is found on those who take advice. But pride only breeds quarrels. When you give someone advice, you're taking a particular thing in question. Let's say, for example, well, you put the nail up too high for this picture. You should lower it. Now, all you're doing is you're talking about the placement of the nail. You're just talking about the nail, the wall, the picture. But that's not how a proud person sees it. Because everything's about them. The proud person says, don't tell me how to hang a picture. I know where to put the nail. <laughs> it's all about them on the overhead. For the proud person, the self is always calling attention to itself. The ego, how you look, how you're doing, how you're performing, how you're being treated. That always spoke, that, that's always the focus of the proud. Here's an illustration. Your body parts don't call attention to themselves unless there's something wrong with them. So when I come home from work and my wife Elizabeth says, how was your day? I never say, oh, my elbow has worked wonderfully today. <laughs> Every time I reach for something, my elbow bends. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> no, normally you, no one ever says that. If your elbows are working fine, you don't think about them. You don't comment on them. Your elbows don't call attention to themselves if there's nothing wrong with them. You only mention your elbows if there was something wrong with them. But the ego calls attention to itself every hour. You can't get through the day without thinking about, am I being snubbed? Am I being ignored? Uh, I get the recognition that I deserve. Did someone commit a microaggression against me and, and hurt my feelings? And by the way, your fragile little feelings are just fine. It's your ego that's gotten hurt. Or maybe you're just getting down on yourself. What does it all mean? It means there's really something wrong with our identities, with the basis for our sense of self. There's something really wrong with our self-centered, self-preoccupation. Now, these are classic symptoms of pride, because the proud self is always aware of itself. And ironically, what we call low self-esteem is also a form of pride. Because do you know what low self-esteem is? You're still overly concentrating on yourself. You're still fixated about thinking about yourself. Uh, you, you feel like you're a failure. You feel bad. You're down on yourself. But notice, you're still thinking about yourself. It might be a negative feeling, but notice, it's still all about you. You're just as, absor you're just as absorbed, just as desperately self-aware, just as self-absorbed uh, as the arrogant person with a superiority complex. And do you know why? Because in your mind, you're still on trial. You're still in the courtroom. Everything that happens is seen as evidence, either for or against you. You're still spinning. You're still arguing. You're still in this endless litigation. The only difference between you with your low self-esteem and the person with the superiority complex is that you think you're losing the trial. You're losing the case. There's too much evidence against you. But you wouldn't be so down on yourself. You wouldn't be telling people, uh, oh, I'm a nothing. You wouldn't be afraid of failure. You wouldn't be saying, well, I'm no good, unless you were just as self-absorbed as the person who we normally call proud. It's the same system. You're in the same courtroom. So on the overhead, pride is, number one, needing to feel you're better than others. Number two, needing to be your own supreme being. And number three, being morbidly self-conscious and self-aware. Now, on the overhead, that's what pride is. 
the diagnosis of pride. Now let's turn to number two, the destructiveness of pride, what it does. Look at Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now notice it doesn't say pride might lead to destruction. No, the connection is very direct. In essence, it says there's this parade going on, and after pride, destruction is coming right along in its wake. Here comes pride, destruction's on its way. Pride leads to destruction. Haughtiness, hubris, leads to a fall. Now why is pride so destructive? There's both a practical and a cosmic reason. The practical reason is this. Uh, look at Proverbs 13.10. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found on the, in those who take advice. A proud person does not learn from their mistakes. A proud person does not learn from criticism. Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin. What this is saying is that you know, in ancient times, uh, at night, you could only see by the light of a lamp. Now, if your lamp casts a yellow light, then everything looks yellow. If your lamp is, is red from, like the, from the flame of a fire, uh, the flame is red, everything, everything around you looks red. And what this is saying is that pride colors and distorts everything you see. So you can't admit when you've done things wrong. You can't admit your own weakness. Everything has to be blamed on someone else. You've got to maintain the image of yourself as a good person, an okay person, a savvy person, a competent person, better than others. Pride will distort your view of reality. And therefore, you will make terrible decisions. That's why it says in Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. So there's all kinds of practical reasons why pride keeps you out of touch with reality and therefore leads to destruction. But there's also a much deeper and much scarier reason, cosmic reason, why pride leads to destruction. Look at Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but it keeps the widow's boundary intact. And Proverbs 16, 19. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the poor than to share plunder with the proud. These are just two examples of this key theme of pride throughout the Bible. God loves the widow. God loves the poor. God loves the outsider. God loves the weak. God loves people who have lost in this world. The losers who struggle for position, the struggle for position and power, God loves them. He is for the widow. He is for the fatherless. He is for the poor. He is for the weak. Why? The Bible says the Lord exists in this eternal triunity of persons. That from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been loving and honoring each other. John 17, 24, Yeshua, Jesus, says to the Father, Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. The inner life of the Godhead was this divine dance of love. Yeshua is saying that Father, Son, and Spirit, from all eternity, each person gives glory to the other two. Each person adores the other two. Each person loves and delights in the other two. There's this dance of love going on from all eternity. Each person within the Godhead centers on the others. Each person gives glory, does not take glory. Each person gives the delight, uh, gives love on the overhead. 
In other words, at the very heart of the universe, at the very origin of the universe, in God, there's an other orientation. At the heart of God is self-giving love. And therefore, if you're in the business of trying to get glory instead of giving it, of scrambling for it, of trying to obtain recognition, of always struggling for recognition and acclaim, then you are on a collision course in the very fabric and being of God himself. Because God loves the lowly. God loves the humble. Isaiah 57, 15, and again in Proverbs 138:6. I am God, and I live in a high and holy place, and also with him who's of a humble and contrite spirit. But the proud I only know from afar. So if you're walking in pride uh, and self-centeredness, it's not only you're on a collision course uh, with God himself, you're on a collision course with God's future plans for the universe. Because the Bible says one day God is going to, to, to lift up the humble and put down the proud. He's going to lift up the weak and put down the strong. And if your goal in life is to get glory and acclaim and recognition and to prove yourself and to prove you're a person of worth and, and confidence and consequence, if that's your goal, you are on a collision course with, God, with who God is and God's plan for the universe. Pride leads to destruction. And now you know why. It's on the overhead. Number one, that's what pride is. And number two, that's how destructive it is. And so finally, number three, what's the antidote? What are we going to do about it? Look at Proverbs 15.33. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. And humility comes before honor. Now, there's two parts to this proverb. There's two principles here on the overhead. First, you've got to get the glory that only comes to the humble. And second, you've got to use the joy of the gospel to erode your pride for the rest of your life. Let's start with the second half of the verse. Humility comes before honor. There's an honor that comes only to the humble. Uh, for the, for the word here for honor in the Hebrew is kavod, which, which means glory. Uh, it's also, also the same word used for the glory of God. Uh, God's glory is what makes him not only important, uh, but solid. The word kavod in Hebrew also means solid, a weightiness. Uh, it's the weightiness, the substance of God. So this verse is saying, it's saying something astounding. Uh, because the humble don't think they're important. The humble don't think they're, they're weighty or significant. Uh, the hum the humble, humble people aren't even after importance. But here's what it's saying. Only if you're not after importance can you get the glory that never fades. Only the people who are sure that they're not important will actually matter forever. There's a glory that's being spoken of here that's only available to the humble which means there's a glory, a substance, a significance that is not attained by your efforts. It's not uh, argued for. It's not merited. It's not earned. It must be a gift. Now, what we're on to with a glory that only comes to the humble is not just a practical principle for living, although it is, but we are on to the very nature of the principle of the universe. At this point, we see the Lord is getting after all of this throughout human history. Go back to the beginning of the history of the world. Look at Genesis. One of the things you're going to see here is that in all ancient cultures, the oldest son always gets all the power. And then in the Bible, in practically every generation, 
God turns this upside down and works with the younger son. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau, uh, Judah over Reuben, Perez over Zerah, uh, Moses over Aaron, David over his older brothers. Over and over again, God is doing this deliberately. The Lord completely turns upside down the world's understanding of greatness and power. In all ancient and modern cultures, it's the beautiful women who get the powerful men. Yet in every place, God works with Sarah over Hagar, or with Leah over Rachel. He works with Tamar, who played the harlot. He works with Rahab, the prostitute. He works with Hannah, the barren woman. Uh, Ruth, the Moabitess. Bathsheba, the adulteress. God works with the barren woman, the unwanted woman, the girl nobody wanted, the boy, boy everybody forgot about. Why does God do this? When the Lord, who has self-giving love at the very heart of, of, of who he is, when he came into this world, he chose to come into this world as a poor man. He was born in a manger, right, in an animal feed trough. He didn't come to the Roman Colosseum uh, or to the Athenian Acropolis uh, or to Caesar's Palace. He was born in an animal feed trough, in an unimportant backwater colony in the Roman Empire. His parents were so poor, they offered two birds at Yeshua's dedication at the temple, the lowest of all the sacrifices. Yeshua himself was homeless. That's the God who's the real God. He does things completely different from what the world would expect. So Yeshua, he's born into a poor family. He grows up basically a poor homeless person, owning only the clothes on his back. And in the end, he's betrayed or, or denied or deserted by all of his apostles and dies an ignominious death. Now, is that the way to win the world? What if someone today said, I have a goal. 2,000 years from now, I want to be the most influential and famous person who ever lived. Uh, I'd like a third to half of the entire world uh, to worship me and build their whole life around me. Uh, I'd like multiple civilizations completely to be built on my teachings. Now, if that was your goal, how would you go about trying to accomplish it? Would you do it the way Yeshua did it? Not on your life. No way. Would you choose to be born in obscurity? Would you purposely avoid getting involved in any of the, of the, of the powerful religious or political or economic or academic or military networks? Would you be killed tragically at a young age of 33? Would you think that was the way to become the most influential and powerful, life-changing person in the history of the world? No. But that's how Yeshua, Jesus, did it. Yeshua makes foolish the wisdom of this world. Because what if God had tried to do it the way that we would have done it? What if, we'd, what if he had come, for example, as a great philosopher with a great philosophical system? Well, then the only first people who would really get it would be intellectually strong. What if he came in, in moral strength and lived a great life and said, now, now live like me uh, and you'll be blessed. Then only the morally strong could follow him. But right now, today, in Southeast Asia, and in China, in South Korea, in Africa, in Latin America, in South America, Yeshua faith is sweeping the globe. It's kindling the hearts of the downtrodden, and the disenfranchised, and the poor, and the oppressed. 
You might not see it much here in the Western, in Western Europe or North America, but around the world, it is sweeping through places and growing at five to ten times the rate of the population. Do you see poor people across the world studying Plato or Aristotle? You having Aristotle studies? <laughs> no, but they're studying the message of Yeshua, and their lives are being changed uh, and healed, and the families and families are being put back together, and they're getting hope. Why? On the overhead, because Yeshua brought a salvation that was received, not achieved. It was received through humility. Matthew five three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua didn't say, I'm strong. I came to live a strong life as your example. So now suck it up with, with all your strength uh, and be like me. No. Yeshua came and lived the life you were too weak to live. And he died the death you were too unwilling to admit that you deserved to die. And he paid the price you could never pay. He came to take your punishment, to be your substitute. He came to do it all for you, to offer you eternal life with him. If you will repent and trust in him, surrender your life to him, to his lordship, that's the gospel. That's the Messianic Jewish gospel, I, I tell my congregation. <laughs> on the overhead, biblical Judaism, by the way, was based on three pillars, uh, Torah, priesthood, uh, and temple. Now, rabbinic Judaism came along and did away with all three. And they substituted the, what they called the oral law or the Talmud for the Torah. And the rabbis for the priesthood, uh, and, and uh, the yeshivas, the study houses, are for the temple. But Yeshua came to fulfill biblical Judaism. He is the living word of God, who writes the Torah, God's law, on your heart. He's the ultimate great high priest. He's the fulfillment of all the temple sacrificial system, filling you with, filling you with his spirit, so that now you become a living temple, where God's spirit dwells. Yeshua gives you a glory you can only be received through humility. He himself came in weakness. That's why the gospel is the hope of the whole world. It's not just for the intellectually strong or the morally strong. It's for everyone. The message of the gospel is it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You can be the worst sinner in the world, but Yeshua is calling you and calling all of us to repent. He holds out a free offer of hope and life and rebirth for you. He says simply you must turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn to him. And you cry out, Lord, accept me into your kingdom. Not because of anything good I've done, but because of what your son Yeshua has done on my behalf. As my great high priest. As my once for all sacrifice. And if you sincerely do this, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Yeshua the Messiah, then you have finally moved out of religion and into the gospel. Religion is give God a moral record and then God gives you a blessing. He owes you a blessing. But the gospel is that God gives you a perfect record in Yeshua and then you live for him. So a test of whether you've been born again is simply are you living for Yeshua? And when you say, Lord, I repent, I turn my life to you, accept me for what Yeshua has done on the tree, on my behalf. When you truly commit to him at that very moment, Yeshua looks at you and values you above all the gold and silver of the world. How do you get that kind of glory, that kind of unconditional love and regard 
That's not based on your performance. That's not based on religious ritual. You know, uh, you need to know, by the way, there are some gifts that are insulting. <laughs> you can only get them if you accept the insult. So for example, for, for, for Christmas, someone gives you a gift, you open it up, it's a bottle of mouthwash. <laughs> and if you accept the gift, you're saying, thank you, and you're acknowledging, yes, I have bad breath. There's no way to receive some gifts without admitting something bad about yourself. And in the same way with the gift of the gospel, you have to be humble to receive the gospel. Because the gospel is that you are so sinful and so prone to evil and so flawed that nothing less than the death of the Son of God on the cross can save you. And to modern Western man, that message is primitive and over the top and insulting. Which only shows that if that's your reaction, you don't yet have the humility to receive this gift on the overhead. Our salvation was achieved by Yeshua through humility. He humbled himself, even to death on the cross. It can only be received by you and by me through humility, by our humbling ourselves, by repenting, by receiving the gift and accepting the gift of the gospel and making Yeshua the Lord of, of my life. To receive the gospel means you first must admit that you need it. The gospel will change your life if you surrender to it. That's why it mostly impacts, by the way, the poor and the oppressed. Why? Because they most often have the humility to admit their need. But we here in the first world, we sophisticated Westerners, we have a lot more trouble with the gospel because it takes humility to receive this gift. And we're, we're often too proud uh, and offended uh, to admit our sin and our desperate need for God's grace. But it takes humility to get the glory offered only by the gospel. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have it. You don't have eternal life in the Messiah's kingdom if you are offended by this gift, which doesn't just say you've got bad breath, but says you are a moral failure when compared to God's standards. And that's the only way you can be saved by the blood of Yeshua. So the first thing you need is humility uh, and poise. The gospel is so unique because the gospel says at the very same time, you are more lost than you ever dared to believe, and yet more absolutely loved and accepted in Yeshua than you ever dared to hope. At the same time, and that's what gives you the balance, uh, the poise, uh, that nothing else can. So first, you've got to get the glory that only the humble can get. But a lot of you are saying, well, I believe all this. But every day I go out into the world, I get sucked back into the courtroom, and I find myself doing it again, succumbing to pride, arguing, gathering evidence, spinning, criticizing others, being devastated by criticism, needing to look down on people. I'm still trying to convince myself and convince others that I'm a person of consequence, that I'm a person who counts. And so I find myself stuck back in the courtroom. What can I do? Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. The fear of the Lord includes a, a holy fear, fear of sitting against our God, fear of punishment, fear of displeasing him, fear of losing fellowship with him, but it also includes awe and wonder and worship and joy for God's grace. Now notice that this verse doesn't say the fear of the Lord gives you wisdom, 
but that it teaches you wisdom. And part of humility is that it teaches you humility. Part of wisdom, I'm saying, is that it teaches you humility. Now, here's how this works. When you get out into the world, you almost automatically are going to go back into this courtroom mode. You think that performance leads to verdict. If you do good, you feel you are good. And if you, if you do no good, you feel you're no good. <laughs> because performance leads to verdict in our minds. We connect everything we do uh, to our self-image. But, but look at 1 Corinthians uh, 4, verse 3. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not justify me. It's God who judges me. You see what Paul's saying? He says, I don't care whether I'm judged by you or by any human court. He's talking to the, the congregation at Corinth. Uh, they're not a court, but Paul's using the same metaphor that Arthur Miller used in his play after the fall. Paul realizes that every day under normal circumstances, our hearts act as if they're on trial. We're in a courtroom. We're arguing. We're trying to make a case. We're trying to prove our own worth. But Paul says, I have another courtroom. Totally. First he says, I don't care what you think about me. And a lot of modern people say, yeah, that's right. You should only care what you think about yourself. But that wouldn't have gotten Paul out of the courtroom. He's still in this endless litigation with himself. He's trying to, to see if he measures up to his own standards, which is just as exhausting and, and guilt-ridden as living up to someone else's standards. But look what Paul says. It's radical. He says, not only don't I care what you think about me, I don't care what I think about me. I've stopped connecting my performance with my self-image. I've gotten out of the game. The courtroom is over. I'm out of the court. If I do well today, that doesn't puff me up because I don't connect that to my self-image. If I do poorly today, I'm not devastated because I don't connect that to my self-image. My self-image, my self-regard is based entirely on something else, something other. Performance does not lead to verdict. Why? Because Paul says it's God who justifies me. He's telling us that Yeshua faith turns upside down the normal way the human heart works. Because if you're in Yeshua, the verdict, verdict is in. The verdict is in. God already accepts you. God already loves you. If you're in Yeshua, for, for, for Jesus' followers, the verdict is in. And it's not that performance leads to verdict. Your salvation is not based on how well you perform. No, it's the opposite. Verdict leads to performance. If you've truly been reborn from above, with God's spirit residing within you, it radically changes how you live. And you now live and walk in the spirit, and not in the flesh. The verdict is in, and that changes how you perform. Now you can go out and help people in the name of Yeshua. Not because you need to feel good about yourself, but because you're walking in love. Out of a new creation heart, the verdict is in, and that changes how you live. And that's possible only because the gospel has taken you out of the courtroom. Because Yeshua, he went into the courtroom. Yeshua went on trial. Uh, and and, and uh, the, the gospel takes you out of the courtroom only because of what Yeshua did. Uh, and the judge and the jury, in his case, began beating him before the trial was even over. He didn't have a chance. Why did he do it? On the overhead. Yeshua went in and got the verdict that we deserved. 
so that we can get the verdict that he deserves. We can get out of the courtroom because Jesus went into the courtroom on our behalf. And you need to meditate on this daily. The fear of the Lord will teach it to you. You need to revive yourself with the gospel. Uh, whenever you're feeling down uh, or dejected or depressed uh, or prideful or resentful or critical of others or jealous or tempted or indifferent or, or tested or full of doubts or anxiety or the cares of this world or, or you're drowned out by, by the lust of the flesh, you revive yourself with the gospel. Remind yourself, the court is adjourned in Messiah Jesus. The verdict is in. Cease your striving. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for showing us today the, the importance of, of, of humility. Help us to see, Lord, today our own pride uh, and to humble ourselves. Lord, we repent of always comparing ourselves to other people and needing to think that we're better than them of needing to think and needing others to think how great I am. We repent of the lie that we can be our own saviors and lords and be in control of our own lives. We repent from our unhealthy focus on ourselves, of, of thinking about ourselves way too much and obsessing how other people perceive us. Lord, help me to stop being preoccupied uh, with, with how I'm looking, how I'm doing, how I'm performing, how I'm being treated. Lord, help me today to set aside my ego to stop being so easily offended. Help me to see it's not all about me. Because you tell us pride goes before destruction. It distorts my view of reality. It goes against the very fabric of your universe, Lord, which is other-oriented, built on humility and self-giving and self-sacrificial love. So Yeshua, teach me today to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Show me that the road to honor begins with humility. For the last will be first, you tell us, and the first will be last. And you tell us, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because your favor, Lord Jesus, is received, not achieved. It's received by your grace. And so, Lord, we turn from our sin, and we turn from ourself, and we turn to you. And we do this now, and we pray this now in your name. Amen.